is a good software developer? What do excellent developers do? There are probably as many answers to these questions as developers in the world. So let's ask veterans and newcomers what their story look like. Let's learn directly from them. Welcome to Developer's Journey. Hello everyone and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' life from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon and today I receive Adrian Boboka. Hi Adrian. Hey Tim, how is it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Thank you. How about you? Well, I thank you for inviting me. I'm kind of tired, but I will try to make this work in a way and try to, to put as much as content in, interesting for your listeners as possible. I'm sure you will do great. When you will start speaking about your own journey, you will lit up. I'm, I'm sure you will. So let me give you a short intro about you, what I know about you, actually. So you are a programmer, a trainer, and a coach, and your passion is actually helping teams produce high-quality software. Um, you're a supporter of deliberate practice of experiments. And in 2016, you published a book about hosting and facilitating course treats. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, in fact, it's co, co created with my brother, with Alex. So we're co-authors of, of this book. Uh, yeah, we, we have, um, a lot of experience with this because Alex was, when he was the first facilitator together with Maria Diakonu of Code Retreat in Europe. Um, so after that, I started stealing, let's say, some <laughs> of his experience. And then uh, I started doing a lot more of these. So, uh, yeah, it was a great experience writing his book. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for the listeners who don't know it, uh, a Code Retreat is, um, is a one-day event uh, where you can try to learn software practices without any pressure, without any, any pressure for the outcome and do the same exercise over and over again. Um, just for the sake of practicing one aspect of your craft. Did yeah. Yeah. Summarize it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, think, that's true. Um, I think the, the next, um, global day of code drink is coming in November, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's once per year. Everyone around the world will try to try this format of code treat. Yeah. Yeah. I encourage people to do that. That's that's really nice. Yeah. Okay. But but let's backtrack a bit. Let's backtrack. We we jumped on the code retreat bandwagon already, but we want to hear about you. Um, you and I met, met in March in Paris. Um, we were at the same Mm -hmm. conference and you were, you were holding a talk, um, about evolutionary design. Um, yeah. Tell us, tell us the journey up there. Um, how did you end up being in software development? Um, maybe how did you end up uh, being in the same field uh, than your brother? And mm-hmm. how did you become someone um, who is called upon to talk at conferences? How, what's the story behind that? Yeah, okay. So it's, um, let's say, a longer thing. Um, I... I tried to, well, I, I always liked doing stuff, creating stuff. Since I was a very small child, I would maybe build things with concrete or with wood or, you know, or with uh, electricity, or I would maybe create, I 
um, things with um, um, from parts uh, like radios and stuff like that. So I, I always like to create th things. And then it was kind of natural for me to continue on in high school on um, on on this path of let's say more technical things. Uh, so I I had I continued education with a lot of math and physics, but I, not a lot of uh, informatics. Strange enough, I chose to go on let's say the more theoretical approach. And I think that was very useful for me till now. And, well, you'll see a bit later why. Uh, and I really started doing programming only uh, in university in the first year. Um, well, because, well, in high school, it was a lot of theory and a lot of mathematics, physics, chemistry, and all, all these things. Um, <clears throat> but I think the, those are very useful if you really want to get very deep into what well software is. and also in what how software can help uh, other domains or other areas you need to understand a lot about these things and yeah uh, for me it felt natural that i start I, I continue working in an area where i i build things um and uh, I was kind of passionate in university of trying to understand what, what this programming is. Uh, so I was just continually trying to create programs and to learn how these things work. Um, I, in university, I had very, uh, very maybe weird uh, types of languages um, because I think I, I learned a lot of them by even those weird ones like Prolog that are that's more like university academic language. Mm -hmm. But even like Scheme and Haskell and uh MathLab, uh, Java, .NET, which are more let's say enterprisey. Uh, but also a lot of SQL. So I think for me, this thing was very useful of having a kind of a pressure from, well, the whole system, the whole educational system from university and the professors and, and everyone that basically every six months, every semester, you need to learn two or three new languages. Um, so that got, that showed me the fact that it's not the language that's so important in anything that you do in, in software development, but it's choosing the language for what you do. And sometimes the choices can be, well, let's say more or less based on what you like, but quite often the choices are based on what you need to do depending on the problem you have, mm -hmm. like it makes sense to use um, a, um, a very fast functional uh, language for somewhere somewhere where you need a lot of transactions, a lot of computations per minute, 
but it makes sense to use something that's more structured, has more typing in in a, a, an area where you need a lot of domain, mm-hmm. and and you need to understand the domain, and the domain is complex, so complex that you maybe you even need the experts in the domain. So I I don't think it would fit to have a functional language in that approach. So I learned a lot of these things from my professors. And, and another thing that is very, for me, striking now is that I, I learned a lot about databases and how they are formed from math, you know, because coming back to high school, I... I really learned that I needed to learn a lot of math. Um, And now if I talk about these things like, you know, a database is basically just a a structure of mathematics and uh, how you structure sets and you need to normalize them. And if I talk about these things, I think 97 to 99% of, 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 whoever I'm talking to will say, what, <laughs> what do you mean? <clears throat> and I, I find this striking because databases are in so poor shape and um, it's always annoying to see that data is stored in a bad way. And, but people try to, to reinvent other tools and other tools, but even with the new tools, they don't use them well. Mm-hmm. So um, let's say, that in my there's this thing I learned that theory, mathematics, physics, uh, even chemistry to some extent can help a lot to understand what what software is because well software started as mathematics in, in the early well twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, like it, it was software was created by mathematicians Um, and uh, it makes sense that all the languages that evolved after that uh, all the languages that started to uh, be used in industrial applications uh, like C or C++ or even well the other ones COBOL and so on that are uh, well not that so used now anymore um, are are languages that are based on mathematics and functional programming even more is based on mathematics so if you don't understand this theoretical concept it's very difficult to understand what a monad is in functional programming mm-hmm. so that's why I keep let's say pushing young people students not to skip over these things because quite often I hear that, no, these are useless. You really want to learn how to code. (laughs) Yeah, of course you can learn how to code, but when you reach the complex things, the, the intricate parts of software development, then you need to understand the basis of, of this coding and mathematics is one part of it. Very important one. Um, yeah, so then um, after, let's say, doing a lot of well programming in university, I, I started working also in during university as a, as a junior programmer. 
Um, but I never gave up this idea of trying to to be a full stack developer because I I don't think um, in the, the world today when technology changes so fast I don't think it's a good idea to say I'm a Java programmer I'm a .NET programmer I'm a Haskell programmer mm-hmm. because you can mix them. Mm-hmm. So when you say so I I don't understand. Sorry. Yeah, when you say full stack, you don't mean just um, going from up to down or down to up from the UI to the database and back, but also mixing up languages and yeah. technologies in between. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because maybe full stack can mean that you use JavaScript and PHP in the front end, but then you use, I don't know, Java in an API in the back end. And then you need some good SQL skills to create a stored procedure. So how I I define myself now and I tell this even during my workshops is that my my purpose as a programmer is someone who helps business solve their processes, improve their processes and help helps businesses prosper. Mm-hmm. So that's what I need to do. That's what I want to do as a programmer. That's my my view. And then if I don't know many options, I can come up with something that may work or not, or something that's not that effective. But the more languages you know, the more approaches you know, it's more probable that you'll use the the best one or the better one for that specific client. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my view of software nowadays, is how, well, how it ended up to be mm-hmm. in... in in our age and it's very, very different than what it used to be in the 50s or 60s but i think for me software development starts to be more like um, uh, a thing that a lot of people should understand uh, you, you can see that software development is everywhere like uh, everyone wants to teach children to code and uh, uh, i think we're all surrounded by software so it makes sense that we understand what is there in our devices, in our even home uh, household devices. But really understanding how to choose a solution for a specific problem that means you really need to to, to search for a lot of options. Mm -hmm. And I don't really agree with, well, how many companies approach this is to say, we know Java, so we'll do a Java project. <laughs> that was that was my next my next no. question. What do you say to those companies? Because um, I mean, they have a point. Um, when when they have only people who can do Java, but it would be silly. To yeah, I tell them. Oh yeah, of course. I tell them make sure not to disappoint your clients, and maybe it's better to um, to say no to projects. You're not. Uh, you, Java Java won't work. Mm-hmm. So it would be fair to take only those projects where you know Java would work very well and you'll help your client rather than um, come up with solutions that are way too heavy or way too difficult, way, way inappropriate for their context and their needs. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Yeah, but then you have to accept that the tool you have it and um, cannot solve any problem which is the thing we uh, tend to uh, 
to uh, to stick to. Well, we have a hammer and we can hammer on everything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Especially with Java. But but that's that's exactly but that's the problem with uh, and going back to this idea of crafting software and you know that that's why well this thing started with with this old movement because if you look in the old age uh, what what does it mean to craft well it means to choose the appropriate tool for the appropriate task mm -hmm. so that's why if you look there's a belt of tools for everyone who who used to do this craft thing in well whatever area like in the in the middle age you know mm -hmm. so it's not possible to have only one tool and use it for everything i know this because i like to also to tinker and to to fix things and you know when i i go somewhere i know i need a lot of tools and i know i if i want to be fast i will take a lot more than usual so but then you need to know those tools how to use them when to use them maybe to you need to have tested them before to feel them mm -hmm. so uh i think that's the idea to have a belt of tools and of course an ecosystem as rich as java could help help many many problems but not, not all of them mm -hmm. you know this thing and that's another thing like you can say i know java as a language but the whole ecosystem is very complex so it's the same as having a, a belt of tools trying to understand all the other things from the ecosystem like with the same with .NET or with these well languages that evolved by having a, a very big ecosystem around them so again you need to learn them you need to understand the whole ecosystem of tools and and, and to have to use them to try them um, so then I we get to the other thing about deliberate practice and having time to learn, having try, time to try them. And that's what happens in coding dojos or, and code retreats and, um, and just maybe giving people time to use them, to try them. Uh, so don't try not to... For everyone, for every programmer in a company, 100%, try to give them Slack so they could try these. Otherwise, they will just have a smaller amount of tools and they will start being less and less productive mm -hmm. as compared to what could be out there and help them uh, improve their efficiency. Yeah, so that's what I teach to, <laughs> to clients and, and that's what I try to, how I try to change Cool. Mm -hmm. Do you have the feeling that companies are receptive to this? Uh, more and more, yes, because the company, the the market has this pressure of, of well, you need to deliver faster and faster. So, in order to deliver faster, probably you need to use the latest tools, and to use the latest tools, you need to have time to learn them. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Okay. Um, kind of makes sense. 
Yes, it kind of makes it makes totally sense, but it's hard to uh, to uh, to argument against numbers. So when when you have a deadline, um, a deadline up your nose, and uh, you're supposed to yeah. deliver soon, and <clears throat> we're always supposed to deliver soon, so it's a, it's a never ending battle, yeah. uphill battle, and so finding the right yeah, it's, it's, for that is always hard. It's I have a very funny story, funny but interesting like we had the client and um we've done a, a, an analysis for their whole process and our conclusion was that they should sell less <laughs> okay so if they'd like to have more money more profit they should sell less and that was very puzzling for them how, how can that happen you know if you need, want to, to 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 have more money, more profit, you need to, to sell more, right? But the thing is that they were they weren't focusing on the right clients, so they were doing things that weren't that effective mm-hmm. with a lot of clients, rather than just focusing on fewer and well, with better results, both economically and both uh, for their developers. And then it took them like two years to come back to us and say, "Yeah, you are right." <laughs> And then we started to change a bit the organization, and in a few months they started seeing that they started being a lot more effective, and, and the, the profits increased, and the programmers were happier. So, well, I think it depends on on what you said. The numbers depends on what you you look at, what mm. and compared to what it could be, or you know. That that's the thing. Like, okay, you can measure now the how much money you make, but what if you could make more? What if you could deliver a lot faster? If you take a bit of time now to stop, mm-hmm. and then it makes a lot more sense. So that's what I'm trying to do to to make uh, this system uh, where they take a bit of time off. But then they will be a lot more productive because of tools, because of knowledge, because of process, because of, of well, many things. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe a small sidetrack, if if if, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, you are you are mixing a lot of different hats. You are a programmer. Yes. But you are also in involved in architecturing systems and and maybe into infrastructure as well. You're training. You're coaching. Mm, no, that's much. You're are there different levels in the organization? Um, why, yeah. why that? And and how did it come to be, or how did you come to realizing you have to do this? Well, I'm not doing infrastructure. I'm not. Uh, I'm not good at infrastructure. I, I can know how to set up a thing, but I'm not doing at all. The rest, yes, mm-hmm. pretty much. Um, how? Um, well, I think they all connect. And I even, well, I even have this opinion that if you want to have be a good um, agile transformation coach, digital transformation coach on the process side, you either need to be very good technical to have this ability to uh, improve the tooling and the, the technical processes, the architecture, the design in the organization, or you should come with someone who, as a pair who could do that. Mm-hmm. Because what too often happens, what I see in organizations, is that 
um, you have these uh, process coaches, agile coaches, whatever. So they, they look more on how people communicate, interact, um, and make this a lot more effective. But in the second part, then you need immediately to understand how to improve the tech side because that will be the bottleneck. So if you don't know how to do that or if you don't have a pair to work with immediately on that, everyone will be very frustrated. Mm-hmm. And I see this over and over again. So that because I I started seeing this problem of, of, of bad processes trying to push when I was um, hired in a company, in few companies back. So I was trying to push this thing of good architecture, clean code, unit testing, test-driven development. From my my part as a programmer, I said, okay, it's not enough. So I need to understand how I can um, learn. I need to learn, in fact, how to how to change things. So I, I started learning a lot more about uh, change management and how to communicate with managers and how to communicate with the people that, well, let's say they care about these things, but they need to understand them in their own language. So that's why I started doing more and more of these process things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I kept my, well, my, this, of understanding the technical things, um, and, and I don't know if you have if you want a, a good transformation from any process to any other process in a in a in an organization of programmers and testers and and ops and DevOps and you know you need to understand them and you need to, to give them the feeling that it will be better for them. And you need to give them tools and options and solutions for their immediate problem. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up doing the, these things. And I think architecture is one of the tools. I don't treat architecture more than that. It's a tool you need to know in a bigger software system. You need to understand architecture. It's the, just as simple as that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting what you, what you all said. Um, I... I um, I will always remember the uh, this this uh, the sentence Amitai Schleyer told me once. I said, "Well, have, mm-hmm. you, have you read the the Agile Manifesto?" I said, "Well, of course I've read the Manifesto. Have you really read it? What's the first sentence?" I said, "Well, people interaction with processes and tools." No, no, no. The first sentence. I said what? And um, there's this first sentence which is overlooked all the time, and this is. Um, through working, uh, with our customers, uh, by, um, helping them and, uh, and doing it, we have come to value. And this helping them yeah. and doing it, um, is very mm-hmm. important. Um, coaches have their feet on both sides in the helping and in yeah. the doing. And, and I can totally relate to what you were saying about, um, being on both on the technical side and the, on, on the organizational, um, uh, side, you have to have uh, mm-hmm. at best two different persons uh, playing on both sides and then closely um, communicating, communicating with uh, with one another. This is what has uh, has been one of the pain points of uh, of a project I had recently, where I was um, pushed on the organizational side because there was a lot to do there and couldn't play on the technical side, and um, and I had to mm-hmm. have someone to uh, play on the technical side for me. 
and we could uh, we could then um, communicate with one another. And without that, all the teams where this person couldn't be as a technical coach in, um, we couldn't leverage really what the, the what we were doing. It was really really uh, um, uh, visible that something was missing. I completely mm -hmm, agree mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, it, it kind of is visible like that. Yeah, for me as well. But unfortunately, you know, when a, a company says we need to to transform our organization because we need to deliver faster, that's that's say the most common approach. They don't know what they need, mm -hmm. so they don't know. They cannot know that they need a technical coach and an agile coach, and I don't know what changes and. They don't know. That's why they hire consultants. Mm. And some consultants do that, some don't. So it's kind of difficult. It's it's that thing, you know, where is the thing you don't know that you don't know. Mm -hmm. It's the most difficult uh, problem. Yes, it is. Probably. And, and thus, um, the importance of networking and uh, having good relations with people who get called in yeah. a project and realize, well, we need a technical coach. Who could I call? <laughs> and then they call yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we we talked um, very shortly on on architecture uh, as one of the tools that you mm -hmm. have in your tool belt. Um, in Paris, you um, made a whole presentation about a different approach of architecture, the uh, the evolution, evolutionary design. Uh, should we touch a bit on that? Yeah, yeah, sure. This is one of my, let's say, favorite topics for the last maybe four or five years. Um, I still come, I come back to it more and more. I to make a distinction be, between evolutionary architecture and evolutionary design. The point of view that the design for me is something that the programmer does daily weekly, uh, daily, hourly, every, every minute when, when you write code. Um, well, the architecture is, is more or less like a direction, a scaffolding. Some people call it for, um, like non-functional requirement, but then when the agile world, people started saying it's not like that. It should be cross-functional requirement, whatever. So something like hearing about security, performance, changeability, testability, all these things. Mm -hmm. So in, when I talk about evolutionary design, I don't talk from this point of view at the higher level. I talk more about the level of trying to evolve a system, considering that you already know these cross-functional requirements. You, you have made this analysis, you talk with your customers, you understand to some extent, um, the risks and you, you know where you need to go. So you already have this in place. And then evolution design is, let's say for me, as well, many of my friends tell me, is just research. research. So I know some things, but I'm still developing and evolving them as I go. So probably each few months, maybe half a year, I have uh, new ideas that add up to the things I, I, I had already. And maybe in the future, I will come up with a book on this topic uh, when I'll, I'll, I'll have enough, let's say, in my head to, to do this. Um, 
what is evolutionary design for me is an, in a way the next step after really working well with test-driven development because test-driven development is a tool is a process that helps you uh, evolve the code um, evolve the design uh, in an incremental way uh, by adding each test adding behavior adding something and that works continuously so it's very important to to have this in mind this is where i started from mm -hmm. so working a lot with tdd puzzled me on why do i take these decisions why do i choose these things so then i started to try to to understand why i work in this way and talk with others and pair with a lot of people or really a lot of people um, and understand how they work and i saw that there are some patterns we use so people who worked ex extensively on with TDD, let's say five, six, 10 years, 15 years, um, they started evolving these heuristics, I call them, you know, the, these ways of working together and this way of working with the code. And it's very interesting that you start having a feeling about how the code should work, but also you start having this um, the, this knowledge that a certain path of evolution starting from, from that specific test is a good way or is not a good way. And this is just uh, personal knowledge coming from a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to put some rules, some laws on these things. I'm trying to understand these things. Why do people evolve code like that? Mm -hmm. And how feasible is it to evolve it like that? Mm -hmm. if, I, if I may uh, reformulate a bit, just to check if I understood it well. So TDD as a test-driven development um, invites you to write a test that describes behavior and then write the mm -hmm. code that goes with it and just write the least amount of code possible to just pass the test. And then refactor your code so that all the tests pass and everything is nice and shiny and or how it should be. So maybe you have to change the design a little bit to uh, to mm -hmm. to make it uh, better for the new idea you just had with this new test. And then write a new test and start again. And do observing this, you realize that the design constraints that uh, emerge out of this are kind of always the same. Our people that uh, are used to TDD are always using uh, or evolving the code in the same way. Is this what you what you're meaning? Um, some some things are the same. Yes, mm -hmm. some aren't, and this is puzzling, you know. And then why why is it different? And then it's very interesting that I I found that quite. Often it happens that people go on different paths of evolution, but they end up at the same solution. Huh. So, you know, then um, how can this happen? Um, and these are the, the questions I'm trying to answer with all this, well, with this talk and with, well, 
my writing on evolutionary design. And basically what I try to, to solve is, is there a way we can understand how in very small steps of adding behavior, we can go to a solution that solves our business problem very fast? Can we have a way of, um, of, of um, computing or of, of deciding if that is the shortest way or if that is a correct way of solving our business problem. Mm -hmm. And it's not a, a simple problem. It's not a simple question. And because it's a complex domain or, or well, I or I am working in complex domains and it's difficult to, to understand how these things go and code is abstract. So then I end up to be very philosophical <laughs> as I was in the talk on, in Paris because uh, th this is what happens when you want to, to take something that's very abstract and distill it to, uh, to patterns, distill it to principles, to laws, starts being kind of difficult to get. Mm -hmm. And then I always coming back to let's in my very old, early ages, uh, I always loved philosophy, and I probably I started reading uh, a lot of philosophy. I'm especially fond of existentialism, uh, but not only. Uh, but probably I started reading philosophy when I was like 11 or 12. Uh, and yeah, I I've always loved well, thinking in abstract ways. So I'm, I'm very happy when I hear people talking in more or less in abstractions rather than trying to be very uh, uh, earthbound. <laughs> uh, for me, it feels like a natural environment. But then there's another very interesting thing with philosophy and with talking in abstractions is that when we, we need, want to explain a very complex thing if we already have this abstraction we just call that name call that concept and if let's say both of the uh, the people who discuss understand the concept they can move forward so they can advance uh, advance the discussion and maybe find something that's very interesting so that's why i really think we need abstractions but we need to be educated to understand these abstractions mm -hmm. Like the four elements of simple design that Ken Beck, uh, well, created or invented or, you know, if, if you say the four elements of simple design, this is an abstraction of, of four very interesting observations in test-driven development. But in order to understand what that means, you really need to work a lot and to write a lot of code and, and to, well, practice your brain to understand how that is so that when you talk with someone else about the four elements of simple design, more or less you have the same idea about it and you understand it. Mm -hmm. well, cool. So, yeah, it's the same with um, design patterns. It's the same with the... Uh, behavior-driven development or domain-driven design or, you know, all these things are complex because we work in complex domains. 
Yes, they are. How would you um, encourage people, um, let's say, let's say newcomers or, or, or maybe uh, less experienced developers, um, to step into such troubled waters about design patterns, about mm -hmm. uh, about uh, metaphors, analogies, abstractions, etc. How, how, what would yeah. be your advice to get in there? Well, I I can tell them what I have done. So I was just. Uh, well, for me, it was kind of special because I I had these uh, courses, workshops in university on design patterns, on um, on a lot of things about design, in fact, and solid principles. And we, we used to talk in the third year about cohesive systems and so first of all get some some theory if if this didn't happen in in i don't know high school or university try to learn some theory try to, to read books about these things like well the well-known book from the uh, younger four of design patterns or the the robert e. martin book about the solid principles and try to, to read those. And then what I have done is I try to use them in my code, but not in my production code, because what happens after you read the design patterns book is that everything will be a design pattern. <laughs> and the code becomes uh, uselessly complicated. Mm -hmm. So then... Try to make some of your own pet projects. Work on them. And get feedback from someone who knows better. Find a mentor. That's what I've done. I've always found someone who knows more than me. And and I was asking them, how is this code? How is this code? What do you think about this? After a while of working on my pet projects, I started understanding them better. And I had feedback that now I pretty much know how to use them and only after that I started using these in my uh, production code from work mm -hmm. okay so so it's it's theory it's practice you're on your own it's mentorship that's my approach and that's what I would recommend that's a very uh, wise way to do it thank you And I, sure. of course, when it talks about mentorship, I'm all about it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Very uh, wise and great uh, advices in there. Um, did we miss a topic? Did we miss a topic you wanted to talk about? Um, well, I just wanted to because I promised I'd come back to why uh, physics was very interesting. Sure. <laughs> uh, I let's say that I I've done a lot of physics and physics problems in high school and then university and well I always enjoyed it. Uh, but you know you kind of tend to forget it if you don't use it for a while. And last year I went to a client and they were they they are having they're doing some um, in, how do you call those uh, embedded 
Swift systems, let's say just embedded systems, mm -hmm. okay? And they they work, um, they're very technical. So one of their stories was something about how to measure current and how to change uh, uh, from <clears throat> polar coordinates to, uh, I don't know which coordinates. And I was like, hmm, I, I've done this before. And I started telling them, no, you should do this and that. And that. And I started immediately remembering how you should do that. Mm -hmm. They were like, whoa, how do you know this? You know, oh, you know, it's just something I've done. Um, so... <laughs> You know, this is why I, I keep coming back to this idea that you need to theory. You need to understand, well, a lot more than just programming because it can happen in 10, 15 years, 20 years, I don't know. And you'll work with some team or you'd work in a team. Well, you maybe need physics or chemistry or I don't know what. Uh, and knowing that or having known it is a lot easier to start off with, because, well, we in software tend to now make uh, programs in a lot of domains. So you, you need to get used very fast to the domain that you're, you're working in. I agree with that. So, so I, I try to tell any students, learn as much as you can. Don't, don't say it's stupid. Don't say it's, don't say it's useless. Sometime in the near future or sometimes a lot later in your career, you might use that. So if you're there, take the time and learn. Mm -hmm. That's the important thing. Yeah, I, I have exactly the same, um, the same experience. I, I have an engineering background uh, that was not in, in, in software at all. And I switched to software mm -hmm. at the very end of my studies. And I worked in, in, in automatism, automatisms in, uh, in, uh, programmable components. And I worked in radio oncology and on, on medical devices, etc. And I found it really always really helpful to be able to, to relate to the product, to really understand how the product is working, even though it has nothing to do with software and, um, kind of, mm -hmm. uh, uh, f have a feeling of what's going on in the company as a, as a whole and not just on the engineering department or on the software department. That's always, very um very helpful to build bridges to network to uh to understand what people are going through etc and um uh, and one one yep. other thought is um at university i did learn some interesting stuff but most of all i learned how to learn <laughs> and what you yeah. said about change, yeah. changing domains and going onto new domains and having to learn fast what's happening is exactly this is going into a complete mm -hmm. new branch of the industry that you don't know anything about and just being helpful uh, from the very first day. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is a skill that you can learn at university and the universities are really preparing yeah. you for that. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. I totally agree on that. Oh, cool. 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 So yeah, I agree. Do some physics. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've reached the end of our time box. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have anything on your plate um, coming up? So in the next month, I would say um, some conferences uh, will be at some some new book. If your new book is coming up in in the next few months, so you you described it pretty well already. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I I am uh, um, I 
published uh, last month a book on facilitating technical events, which is more or less based on how to facilitate uh, an open space, mm-hmm. like uh, Socrates Unconference. It's a case study of a Socrates Unconference, but you can use this book for facilitating any kind of events, uh, of, of technical events. It goes from planning to talking with your, let's say, clients, like, would would benefit from this, and, and then to, to formats and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of 75-80 page book uh, that I just published. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else I want to do? I want to finish. I'm working on a book on code repeat sessions, I'm calling it. So um, it's about... Uh, explaining how to facilitate around 70 uh, sessions uh, from code retreat. Mm -hmm. This is again for code retreat facilitators. So I explain in detail how to facilitate these uh, technical sessions of 45 minutes from the code retreat. You you mean? And then I don't know. Sorry, you mean mean the different uh, different, um, exercises? So no talking, the silent pair, the the TDD. um, Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, cool. mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have a list of around 70 of them now, um, but I still need to write on, uh, on some of them and, and, and try to finish it uh, maybe one, two months before the global day. I don't know how I will work on that, but I, I try to keep on me on a tight schedule so that I all finish it uh, in due time. Sounds cool. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing on deliberate on, on evolutionary design. I don't know. I just I don't I don't feel I have enough now for a book. But maybe after the book on concrete sessions, I'll start working on it. It feels like the natural moment, but it will take a few years, mm-hmm. probably. I'm, I'm sure your brain is working on it right now, even though, even though you are not. Yeah, writing. yeah, that's yeah, 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 yeah. Well, definitely cool. Um, where can the listeners find you? Well, I have a blog. It's blog. dot or you can Google me anywhere. It's Twitter Eddie Bulb A D I B O L B. This is pretty much how I communicate to the world nowadays. So, yeah, I I will add this and the links to your books uh, in the show notes, so listeners can go just below yeah. and uh, click. And get a direct link there. Well, thank you. Great. Um, Ali, thank you very much for coming and explaining your journey. Um, that was very insightful. Yeah, thank you for having me. And this has been another episode of Their Journey, and we we'll see you in two weeks. Bye bye. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, and much more. And if you like what we do, please help your fellow developers discover the podcast by rating it and writing a comment on those platforms. Thanks again, and see you in two weeks.